This episode contains sensitive content that may not be appropriate for listeners of all ages. Listener discretion is advised. From Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Mountainland Physical Therapy's Pelvic Health Podcast. I am your host, Madison Spland. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Dr. Jared Ada. Dr. Ada attended Brigham Young University and received his Bachelor of Science in Kinesiology and Exercise Science, followed by his Doctorate of Osteopathic Medicine from A.T. Still University in Mesa, Arizona. He then completed a residency in Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Loma Linda University Health. He then went on to complete a Sports Medicine an interventional spine fellowship at Georgetown University Hospital. He is currently working in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thank you for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So our discussion today is kind of like, what is PM&R medicine? How can us pelvic therapists work with these physicians? Um, and for our community members out there, when is it a good time for you to seek out these different providers? Um, we'll kind of talk about the multidisciplinary approach with pelvic floor dysfunction, um, as well as how that intertwines with pelvic pain, with pelvic weakness, um, low back dysfunction, hip pelvic abdominal regions and how we can work together kind of moving forward. So just a couple of stats to really start off with knowing that, you know, pelvic pain is actually quite profound within our community. So one in seven American women ages 18 to 50 have suffered from pelvic pain and 61% of those actually don't have a diagnosis. Um, and so that's quite a large area of our population. Um, a lot of conditions potentially causing pelvic pain found by Boardman in a 2006 study have to do with like bladder or colon malignancies, endometriosis, pelvic congestion syndrome, um, pelvic inflammatory disease, you know, issues from radiation, interstitial cystitis, um, different trigger points within the pelvis and abdomen, low back pain, nerve entrapment coming from those different regions passing through the pelvis, even some comorbidities with depression, constipation, irritable bowel syndrome, and postpartum dysfunction. Um, just to kind of give a background in regards to like, what is pelvic pain? You know, pelvic pain, chronic pelvic pain really is described as having pain lasting longer than six months that is not attributed to an actual infection going on. Um, and this is based on the definition by the chronic pelvic pain in 2014. Um, so I know a lot of the interrelationships with PMNR is going to have to do with pain. Um, and then and how we as therapists then identify what's causing that pain. So as we've kind of started off, Dr. Ada, can you now maybe talk to us a little bit about like, what is PM&R medicine? What's your training? Just so we kind of have a good background on that to start off. Yeah. Um, so that's like the million dollar question, because it's probably one of the most difficult questions because PM&R is such a broad field. And so what one PM&R doctor may be doing may look completely different from what another PM&R doctor may be doing. For example, you may have a, a PM&R doctor that specializes in uh, treating uh, spinal cord injury or traumatic brain injury or amputation or stroke and all the sequela associated with those conditions. And then you have PM&R doctors like myself that are kind of more sports medicine, musculoskeletal orthopedics and spine oriented. Um, and so it's very different. But regardless of where you fall within the specialty of PM&R, we all have uh, the same focus on improving function and quality of life. Um, and that's the one thing that kind of binds us together, despite our kind of various kind of the scope of practice within 
uh, physical medicine rehabilitation is uh, we're trying to maximize function and improve people's quality of life. And I mean, just that in and of itself, I think it makes it a very unique specialty. Many people probably don't even know what physical medicine or rehabilitation is or physiatry is kind of like the shorter name for it, but it's a fantastic specialty. And um, yeah, it's just a specialty that day one from day one of your training, uh, you're trained to kind of look at the body as a whole. And that's going to obviously touch on kind of what we focus on today with pelvic floor dysfunction and pelvic pain. But um, as you know, like from where the, the moment that the kind of foot interacts with the earth striking the ground, going all the way up to the kinetic chain to wherever the pathology may be, whether that's in the knee, the hip, the pelvis, the low back, the shoulder, um, you have to kind of look at the body as a whole. I think it's just, I love PM&R, obviously, as I, as I went into it, but I mean, so often in Western medicine, we're seeing further and further and further specialization, you know, like my orthopedic surgical colleagues, and they're like, I do hip and knees, I do hand, wrist, elbow, I do shoulder and hips. And it's good in some ways if you have, if you're doing surgery, you get really, really good at doing a few things. And that's what you want when someone's going to, you know, cut you open and try to fix things. And so that's great and all, but from a diagnostic point, sometimes in a kind of a before surgery standpoint, you really have to take a step back sometime and look and see what's going on. Because sometimes we don't know whether the thing that someone is coming in to see us in, in the office is the victim or the culprit of something else going on. Very nice. And why did you choose it? Like of all the realms within medicine, what made you choose PM&R? Yes, great question. I love to answer it because I obviously love doing what I'm doing. But so, I mean, you kind of touched on it, but I mean, I'd always been very active throughout my entire life. Love sports, love just being active. And um, so I was an undergrad I specialized in exercise science and kinesiology and just loved that I could go to class and then go outside in the field or go on a run or play soccer or go to the weight room and immediately begin to implement the things that I was learning in class, you know, how to make my body work better, how to make it function better, how to make it perform better. And um, I just have always thought the human body, functional anatomy, kinesiology, exercise science is always so fun. And I remember actually... I don't think we've talked about this, but I remember I was like, oh yeah, medical school and I'll do sports medicine. It's like a natural fit. I like sports. I like the human body. But I started shadowing these physicians and I was, I got kind of temporarily kind of disenchanted with the medical route because like they didn't touch their patients. You know, I was shadowing orthopedic surgeons. I was shadowing sports med docs. I was shadowing pediatricians and they, they did not touch their patients very much. And I in exercise science, a lot of my kind of peers were going into athletic training or physical therapy, and they were always touching their patients, you know, putting their hands on, diagnosing, um, being able to treat with their hands. And that was so attractive to me. And so I almost went down a different route uh, until I found out DO schools or where the medical schools that confirmed the doctor of osteopathic medical degree, uh, because there you get additional skills in osteopathic manipulative treatment where you can use your hands to palpate, to diagnose, to treat. And I thought, oh, as a sports medicine or musculoskeletal doctor, that's just another tool in the tool belt. And even beyond that, uh, DO schools, they're always kind of, they're very holistic. You know, they look at the body as a whole, body, mind, and spirit. Um, and that's very kind of common nowadays, whether you're a D or an MD to kind of do that, that kind of holistic approach. But I mean, that's from our heritage, our DO heritage, like that was always a big part of it from the beginning. And so that just naturally kind of uh, attracted me. And then from there, 
I just got lucky and stumbled upon PMNR. Like, I was like, okay, I, I realized in med school that there's no PMNR, there's no sports medicine residency. And so you have to do some other residency, then do sports medicine fellowship. And so I'm like, well, what am I going to do for residency then? And I think it's like first quarter of my first year, they're like, there's going to be a physical medicine and rehabilitation interest group at lunchtime. And I was like, physical medicine, that kind of sounds somewhat similar to sports medicine. So I went and checked it out, learned. And really from that point on, I was hooked. The more I learned about physical medicine, their emphasis on improving quality of life, their emphasis on function, looking at the body holistically, uh, examining the kinetic chain, um, being able to do procedures, to being able to develop long and meaningful and rich relationships with your patients. All those things kind of just spoke to me. And then after that, it was just kind of like, well, like, why not get even better? And that's how I chose to do a sports medicine and spine fellowship. I just, uh, I wanted to be able to rehab athletes and people that were very active in the acute and subacute injuries that they experience. And there's a big kind of emphasis on improving your procedural acumen and skill set. And so it was just a very natural choice to me. And so that's kind of like the route that I came to get here. <laughs> Very nice. I know when I'm treating women, I would say in general, pelvic pain or incontinence, at some point the question comes up like, and why did you choose this one? So it's always interesting for me to kind of hear that on the opposite end, like, why did you choose this specific area within your field? So thank you for sharing that with us. I appreciate that. So I guess now kind of diving into kind of the meat and potatoes of this podcast, maybe let's kind of start off talking about like, what are the common things that patients are coming to you for that might be pointing you in the direction of like pelvic floor dysfunction? What are they presenting like in your clinic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, man, it's a great question. So, I mean, usually they'll come to me with some kind of musculoskeletal or orthopedic complaint. Um, that I hurt here and they'll point to someplace, you know, um, and whether it's like pointing to their SI joint or their tailbone pain or kind of deep gluteal pain, which makes me suspicious for like piriformis or obturator internus issues, um, greater trochanteric pain syndrome or trochanteric bursitis on the outside of the hip. Oftentimes they might have kind of intraarticular hip pathology in the groin or, you know, just coming to the front like athletic pubalgia or core muscle injury or kind of adductor longus injuries. Um, those are the things that I'm beginning to think of. Additionally, if a, someone comes in and they, I have, I'm suspicious of a hypermobility joint syndrome, uh, I think that they're a little bit more predisposed to having the kind of types of injuries associated with pelvic floor dysfunction. I might usually definitely going to perk up if I have any suspicion of that. So, yeah. Very good. Very good. So now when you're kind of starting to go in that direction, talk us through like, what's your examination and evaluation techniques look like and procedures with these patients diagnostically to kind of maybe rule in or rule out what you might be thinking? Yeah. And I was actually thinking about this and a lot of it's just trying to find, find the deficits. Um, and so I'll just do my kind of normal. I always, always evaluate, um, the lumbar spine and the pelvis and or hip uh, together because just like kind of referring back to what we were said earlier, like they go hand in hand. I mean, I feel like it's only a matter of time. If one is dysfunctional, it's only a matter of time before the other is dysfunctional or vice versa. And so I'll do a very detailed kind of lumbar spine, a hip and pelvis exam, specifically things that I'll be looking for. Um, I'll be evaluating their SI joint. If they got uh, SI joint issues, then I might be concerned for that. 
I'll always, always evaluate, especially per my history, um, evaluate for hypermobility joint syndrome. And I'm just going to backtrack real quick. I know you talked about exam uh, and evaluation stuff. So much of what I do and how I make my diagnosis is just from history. I'd say like I've got, I could probably make the diagnosis 85, 90% of the time after just obtaining a really, really detailed history. And so just asking kind of what their physical activity is. Um, do they have any kind of urinary or bowel incontinence or any difficulties with that? Any kind of pregnancies, uh, vaginal deliveries versus C-sections. Of course, if they're hypermobile or any kind of anything that would lead me to think that they're hypermobile at all. And then obviously their kind of musculoskeletal pain complaint that they typically come to see me. So that's history is a big, big part of it because that's going to lead and guide my kind of further examination evaluation. But from there, yeah, like evaluating the lumbar spine, evaluating the sacroiliac joint, uh, palpating specifically the kind of the deep muscles of the kind of buttock. So if I palpate and I feel that they're exquisitely tender palpation over like the piriformis or the operator internus, and then kind of going to the side of the hip, either around the tensor fascia lata, glute me, glute men, uh, then my ears are going to perk up. That's something that I'll kind of maybe include on my physical therapy prescription when I send them to physical therapy. Um, obviously, tenderness over the uh, greater trochanter. Let's say tenderness over the kind of pubic symphysis or the kind of musculature that attaches to it, whether it's directus aponeurosis, adductor longus, pectineus. And so that's kind of like a palpatory diagnosis. And then range of motion is very, very important. Looking to see any deficits in lumbar spine range of motion, um, the hip, uh, how is their internal external rotation? Um, that might kind of lead me to think that, oh, do they have tight, deep hip external rotators, which could be causing this? Like, there's there's just so much um, that there could be. But I don't know, from the history and as you evaluate more, it just kind of leads you down to evaluate certain things. Uh, strength, obviously, is another thing, too. Um, evaluating their core strength, front, sides, and back. Uh, evaluating their um, their hip abduction, glute med men, if I can push them down with one or two fingers and or if I see that they're trying to cheat by engaging their stronger glute max or their stronger hip flexors, then I'm like, okay, there's definitely things that we can work on uh, with physical therapy. Absolutely. And I think from like a physical therapy standpoint, pelvic specifically, providers out there making sure you're not having like the vagina blinders on right yeah, we're looking at the whole body uh -huh. actually dr aid and i went to the same school for health sciences at at still university so we have that similar background of that holistic approach and understanding you know where are their goals where are we at you know functional assessment super important you know watching their range of motion and standing sitting twisting um and kind of assessing what's happening at each of those joints moving up because maybe they're having pelvic dysfunction but if their ankles aren't moving properly with twisting or with squatting, how is that translating up the chain? And so really trying to look at that whole body. And I love how you describe your core assessment because so many individuals just assume the core is their abs. And I'm like, no, the core is the inside of you. To have a strong core, you have to have a strong top bottom, front, back, and side. So we have to assess the whole region. And I think a lot of people don't really think of like the diaphragm and the pelvic floor being a part of the core musculature within the body. The diaphragm is a very important muscle. Absolutely. Everybody assumes for like the lungs, but it's very important for the abdominal cavity as well. Um, so for pelvic floor PTs out there, just please, please, please take off your vagina blinders. Look at the whole person. <laughs> Amen. Because I have seen such a mass comorbidity with like, they think it's hip 
and they're getting that groin pain and we go and we do an internal assessment and oh there's that obturator internist just being firing up um we know through the research that the obturator internist is one of the most trigger point pain places within the pelvic floor and so similar association don't just treat the obturator internist through intravaginal intervention you want to treat it through the glutes as well. So you're treating that entire muscle, not just one section of it. I agree. Like the comorbidities with weakness without within that glute complex, a lot of PTs for some reason don't tend to do like hip internal and external rotation strength or adduction strength. And I find, you know, those adductors are super weak. They can cause that pubic bone pain reproduction that we might be seeing with that um, athletica individual um, assessing for diastasis. That's huge in males and in females. It is so prevalent out there. 100% of females by the third trimester are going to have that diastasis. How many will heal from it kind of depends on the connective tissue genetics and things like that. Whereas our males, you know, they might have that like pear or that apple shape and they're like, well, how'd I get a diastasis? I'm like, well, you just have a slow growing food baby. So we need to take care of that, get their core back to it. And so, you know, really just making sure to have that holistic approach. And I do feel like depending on your training there can be some good improvements within that range of the examination evaluation component for sure. Mm -hmm. So maybe talk to us a little bit about like what types of interventions are you using? So maybe let's talk about what are the top like three dysfunctions that you commonly treat that are within kind of our pelvic realm? I mean, Oh, it's, I mean, because a lot of what I do for pelvic floor dysfunction is I'm about to get on, on a soapbox, I feel, but it'll be a brief soapbox, I promise. But it's <laughs> like, I mean, I love physical therapy. That's why when you when you asked me to come on the podcast, I was like, absolutely. I'm, a, I'm an enormous fan of physical therapy because at the end of the day, physical therapy, when I send people to physical therapy, um, I hope that it is an active intervention. Um and I talk about any of the med students or residents, fellows that have worked with me, they, I always, they're always going to get to talk about active and passive interventions. And I am an, a huge uh, advocate of active interventions. Um, an example, so passive intervention is when you're just kind of passive, you're not really doing anything, and someone or something is doing something to you versus an active intervention is you're doing something to change your body yourself, you know, like high blood pressure. I give you a pill for high blood pressure. That's a very passive intervention. Active intervention would be you work on weight loss, you modify your diet, you decrease your salt intake. You know, those, those are active interventions. And active interventions, I think we can all agree that's the, the most healthy thing for the patient and is going to be provide the most lasting benefit to the patient. So when I send people to physical therapy, um, like, I don't want them to just be massaged and have a nice moist heat pack on and um, put on the nice TENS unit. So basically, I tell my patients, if you're going to a physical therapy gym, and I don't know the physical therapist, and they're doing all the really nice things that you love, and it's like you're going into a nice spa, then run away. Don't go there. Go somewhere else. Like, I want you, like, sweating. I want you working. Um, because that, that's the active intervention. That's going to provide the, the lasting benefit. I mean, there is a time and a place for passive interventions. But I mean, when I send people to physical therapy, I want them to have there be a fundamental change in the body itself and range of motion and flexibility and strength and stabilization, proprioception, what have you. And so, um, yeah, sorry, I'll, I'll step off the stealth box, but it's like, and so when you ask me what I do, interventions for kind of patients with pelvic floor dysfunction and the associated injuries that I see in my office, I mean, most of what I'm doing is to 
decrease pain so that there's no barrier to their full participation with physical therapy, whether that's with medications, um, bracing, you know, with like a sacred belt or injections, you know, to make them comfortable um, while uh, they do physical therapy, while they do the kind of functional uh, and active intervention. Um, the other reason why I may do kind of interventions, namely uh, injections a lot of time is to, as an adjunct to what the physical therapist is doing. Just the other day, um, I don't know if it was you or someone else, but uh, someone, they sent me their evaluation. I think they sent me a text message and they like, they have exquisitely tight and tender, like deep gluteals, like piriformis and obturator internus. And I didn't know which one it was. And so I brought them in. I'm like, I text them all, hey, like, eventually could it work itself out with what you do? Like, yes, but a needle and a little bit of medicine um, can fix that really fast, you know? And so it's like, it was just a way to kind of uh, speed along the process of really trying to loosen up those tight um, muscles deep in the gluteal. And so those are the two big reasons why I would kind of target interventions and to your prior question, what three things? I mean, sacred iliac joint injections oftentimes, because um, sometimes those can be very, very ir irritable and difficult to calm down. Um, the piriformis and or obturatus internus injections, because those guys, I mean, they're just, it's such a problem area. SI joint to problem joint. Uh, those kind of deep gluteals can be uh, problem areas as well. So if I can make their your guys' job a little easier and kind of decrease pain, decrease some of that tightness, um, I'll do that. And then the most third most common, I don't know, I'd almost say like they're really weak hip abductors. And so uh, either kind of like a troke bursa tendon injection, I'm uh, sorry, a troke bursa uh, injection and or um, trigger point injections, if they're just exquisitely tender and weak over those kind of hip abductors, glute men, mead, tensor fasciolata, um, I'll go after those as well. But like I said, I mean, you guys are doing most of the magic. I'm just kind of helping to make your job easier and speed along the process whenever I can. I always love the question when patients are like, but why? Like, why did this happen? Uh, I don't know. Let me think about that. Like, yeah. I feel like a lot of patients I see where like their piriformis is overactivated and very, very tight, but maybe still weak. Mm -hmm. And then I assess pelvic floor and they have a lot of weakness. It makes me think, I'm like, well, maybe what's happening is those muscles are so tight to hold on for stability because you're lacking a major component within the pelvic floor. And so as we work and strengthen the pelvic floor, the piriformis begins to kind of simmer and release because it's not holding on for dear life to add that stability component. And so sometimes when we find weakness in one muscle group, we're going to find overactivation in another to kind of help even out what's going on there. And so I'll find, you know, some people just really, when they see a weak piriformis, but it's also really, really tight and tender, they kind of want to get after it with like clamshells, fire hydrants, all the things. And I have seen clinically sometimes that's going to go the opposite direction. It's going to overactivate it. It's going to make it more tight and tender. And so I try to really look at kind of the broad picture and what else is weak going on. Let's facilitate strengthening those first to see what happens within that piriformis. So we're not tightening a muscle that's already tonic in nature. But I love the adjunct of the injections because the research totally validates that PT plus injection 
combination is better than one individual intervention on its own, which has been studied with different um, randomized controlled trials, which has been awesome to help validate. Like when patients ask me, like, should I just push it off? I'm like, absolutely not. I think you should get it at the same time. We can push you harder in the clinic without aggravating it, get it to simmer down and then reprogram the system so that it doesn't come back. I think a lot of patients get worried that like, oh, I'm going to have an injection. It's just going to be like that now. I just, I'm going to have to have an injection every three months to keep my symptoms managed. And I don't realize, no, the injection, yes, can last up to three months medically. However, that helps us to kind of get over the hump to then rehab you appropriately without killing you and having you writhe on the table as we're doing ASTEM or Graston or whatever dry needle torture technique that we're using onto that tissue to make that change for the long term. And of course, the home exercises are key. I love my return offenders or my frequent flyers, as I call them, that come back and I'm like, well, what are you doing for your home exercises? And they'll look at me and have that sheepish look. And I'm like, okay, well, you know the plan. Here we go. <laughs> and so they're like, I know I should have kept going. And so, you know, compliance with the home exercises, I find oh, yeah important and you know it's that active treatment right like sorry I can't just give you a pill it's not gonna be an overnight change and to be honest a lot of the research is showing like PT over pills like urologists for example the journal of urology shows physical therapy should be the first line for urgency incontinence stress incontinence however a lot of patients want that quick fix and so they're going to try that passive intervention of the medication first when the research totally validates you should try pelvic pt first before adding a medication we know individuals over the age of 65 i think i read have an average of like 12 medications per day mm -hmm. and think of all those like interactions going on between the medications the side effects from one we're given a pill to reduce the side effects that you're having one pill for just like can we slow down the pharmacology work on the the active i totally totally agree with that soapbox 100 percent it's true huh. so true i mean one day one of my friends asked so like what is, what's like your toughest patient and it's the patients that they there's they have they want the quick fix you know they're like give me the pill give me the needle and that just kind of goes against every grain fiber in my being so i'm just like but you're just gonna have to keep getting the pill and the needle like every x amount of time and it just i don't know it just i have some very fundamental uh disagreements with that and so those are the patients where i just i have to take some time and be like okay hey look i want to make you better if you just want to band it on it i can do that but that's all it's ever going to be it's just going to be a band-aid we'll give you a pill every so often we'll give you a, an injection every so often so those are the ones that are tougher so i completely Absolutely. agree so I'm kind of curious. So from a physical therapy standpoint, so maybe I can educate my patients when I'm referring them, like what is the procedure for maybe an SI joint and a piriformis injection? Are you using the ultrasound guided to make sure the needles are going in? Kind of walk us through a little bit. Like if I was a fly on a wall, what would I see during that procedure? So when, when patients asking me, I might be able to inform them a little bit better of what's happening in that room. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so for the uh, sacroiliac joint or the SI joint injection, and I pretty much always use guidance 98, 99% of the time. And it's just because all the research shows that your accuracy imp improves. There's no kind of dispute really there. Um, you're going to have a more precise injection. Uh, and so in terms of guidance, you can either use x-ray or kind of a type of x-ray called uh, fluoroscopy uh, or ultrasound. 
And for sacred iliac joint injections, you can you can use either or. And actually, for piriformis and operator intersections, you can use either or. Uh, but for SI joint injections, I typically use fluoroscopy or the kind of X-ray machine. And it's just basically a big kind of it's about maybe eight to ten inches wide uh, C-shaped X-ray machine. And you just kind of the patient lies in the middle on a table, and we get X-rays in different orientations to visualize the SI joint. And then we kind of clean the, the skin, we drape the skin, numb up the skin in the needle track with some lidocaine, which is just a local anesthetic that lasts a few hours. And then we kind of, we, we say derive, but we drive a, a needle down to the sacred iliac joint. We inject a little bit of uh, contrast that shows up on x-ray to confirm that we're in the joint. And then we put a mixture of whatever injection we're doing. Uh, oftentimes it's going to be some type of corticosteroid. Um, and a little mixture of maybe lidocaine or saline. So um, very simple, very easy to do. Uh, and then for my, the piriformis or operator turnus, you can do it with fluoroscopy, but my preference is to do it with um, ultrasound because ultrasound, you have the added benefit of being able to see all the soft tissues. X-ray or fluoroscopy is just joints and bones, okay? And the piriformis operator turnus are muscles. And so I can clearly see um, the piriformis muscle, I can put my probe over it, visualize piriformis press, and they're like, ow, that's it. Or they're like, mm, it's close, but not quite. And then I just scan a little down a bit more where the operator internus is, press on it. I'm like, what about here? They're like, oh yeah, that's it, definitely. And so I'm like, oh, it's probably more your operator internus rather than your piriformis, you know? A piriformis is the the popular muscle that everyone talks about, but uh, very often what we think is piriformis is probably actually obturator internus. And so you can actually, quote unquote, we call sonopalpate to figure out whether it's more the piriformis or the obturator internus. And once you find it with sonopalpation, then you can kind of guide your inner, your injection. And uh, the same kind of thing, you just kind of clean the skin, numb the skin up with the local anesthetic, drive that needle down under direct visualization with your ultrasound machine. So I see where my needle is the entire time. I can see if there's nerves or blood vessels around and avoid those, drop it down right into the uh, piriformis eruptator, turn us whatever we're targeting and deliver the medicine right where it needs to go. So big, big fan of ultrasound. I like the ultrasound too. It helps you with like the depth, I would think too. Oh yeah, absolutely. And so how long do you think those, so if a patient was going to come in for an injection, how long is that appointment usually? Well, the actual injection itself, from the moment I clean your skin to when I pull out the needle and put on Band-Aid, that itself is probably like five to eight minutes or so. But, you know, you got to come in, you got to check in, they got to get your vital signs, uh, pull up the medication sometimes, um, all that. And so, I mean, a 20 minute visit sometimes sometimes longer if you have to do it at a, sometimes you can't do the fluoroscopic SI joint injections uh, in the office. And so you have to go to an ambulatory surgical center, which is just, it's a little bit of overkill, but they have protocol that they have to follow for the kind of safety because they perform surgeries there too. So, I mean, if you could do it, it might be kind of 30 minutes, but really the actual injection itself takes about five minutes or so. Great. Now from, for us physical therapists, when should we refer out? Like at what point is it, you know, early on in the diagnostic 
assessment? Is it when the patients aren't quite meeting their goals to the degree and the level we want them to? Is it when we hit a plateau? Kind of what is the best point for us to be referring patients to you if we're thinking there's some other joint and musculoskeletal involvement besides the pelvic floor beyond our scope? Yeah, I mean, I would say yes to everything you said. I mean, every therapist is going to have their own comfort level with uh, various musculoskeletal or kind of pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, But, you know, just to kind of, I guess, clarify it. I mean, if you're doing all the right things, if you feel that you should be doing for your exam and evaluation and patients are just either plateaued or are not improving, then I would refer them to uh, a physician. Um, If you know, you get referred to someone and sometimes like someone gets referred to you and you're like, you know what, they said it was a radiculopathy, but you know, this isn't smelling or sounding or feeling like a radiculopathy and, you, and maybe the diagnosis is in question and maybe you want to get a second opinion. I've had therapists send me uh, patients and I'm like, yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think this is what the original diagnosis, I think this is something else. Um, I would send them, um, I mean, those are two scenarios right off the bat that I could think. Uh, or if you're just like scratching your head and you're like, there's something different going on. Like, and, you know, I don't want to start down a path uh, if I'm not confident that um, it's going to help them, then I would just send them, you know, before you get into the nitty gritty of it. Because um, it's, it's just so discouraging to the patient too. Like, I can't tell you how many patients I've had them come to me to see physical therapy uh, or come to see me. And I'm like, okay, I go through do my history and they're like, yeah, and I've done physical therapy for like two, three months and it hasn't helped at all. And I'm like, okay, well, if you're targeting the wrong problem, then yes, it's not that physical therapy doesn't work, period. It's because we were doing the wrong type of physical therapy. And so if you just kind of want a little bit more feedback or kind of um, input as to what direction or route you want to go down, then I think it's totally appropriate to refer as well. Yeah, I try and tell those to my like orthopedic colleagues out there. I'm like, if your back or your hip patient is just not improving the way you think that they should, that's always a good idea for a refer maybe over to pelvic because of how it's all kind of intertwined and related. Um, I find, you know, a lot of people think they have hip flexor or hip dysfunction going on. And I go into different vaginal tissues and find maybe that ischiocavernosis along that anterior wall, very adjacent to like the pubic and that hip flexor are super tight and I'll palpate and they'll be like, that's it like that. Mm-hmm. And refers right there. Um, and then they'll be like, ah, like, how has it been here the whole time? And I've been here and you know, it, it, you only know what you know. And I oh, think yeah. that's kind of the, the cool part about all these different professions, right? Like my associations, like family practice, know a mile about an inch. Whereas as a PT, I know an inch about a mile, right? And so just finding that right specialist, if things aren't working, keep like searching for the answer, because just if one person couldn't find it, doesn't mean that there's another provider out there that can't find out for you what's going on. We each have our different kind of specialties and certifications that help us down the right pathway and problem solving and different tools in our tool bag, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that too. It's just, I mean, I still remember like when I was a medical student, I'd ask physicians, like what makes a good doctor? And I kid you not, like 75% of them said the same thing. And they're like, know when you need help, you know, know what your limits are. Because I mean, we're in the healthcare profession egos are involved and we think we can take care of everything but i mean 
like the good doctors are the ones that were like, you know what, like this is getting beyond my comfort zone. Like I need help, you know? And like you said, we're all learning, you know? And so there's no shame in being like, Hey, like, I don't know what's going on. What do you guys think? And I've done it plenty of times in my career thus far. And I'm, I will continue to do it probably for many, many, many years until the end of my career. So I think that's, a, you bring a good point. It's just, you know, there's no shame in it. It's just, if you want a second opinion or referring out to someone, like we're all here to help each other. So. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Ada, if nothing else, what do you hope listeners take away from this podcast? Oh man, I just would say, I mean, be on the look. I'm just all about empowering patients. Try to find good therapists, try to find good physicians, because if you do, like they won't lead you astray. Like they tend to, they tend to know each other. Like I feel so lucky that we got connected because I'm like, oh man, I'm I'm so grateful that I can send these patients that are sometimes complete train wrecks and they've just kind of ignored or been maybe uh, mismanaged for years, sometimes decades that I can send them to you. And I know they'll get good care. So it's just, uh, I know it's difficult navigating the healthcare system, but just be vigilant um, and try to find those providers that uh, know how to help you and are responsible. And I don't know. Yeah. It's just kind of things that I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. Well, thank you for listening. If you would like to speak with a specialist, please email podcast at mlrehab.com. I would like to thank Dr. Ada for coming on the show today. And if listeners want more information or like to get into contact with you, what is the best way to do so? Um, They can contact my office. I am at St. Mark's Hospital in Mill Creek in Salt Lake City, uh, Alpine Orthopedic Specialist. Yeah. If you have any questions, you want a consultation, be happy to see you. Um, Yeah. And once again, thank you so much for having Madison. It's been great. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, thank you again for listening. Tune in to next month. And also remember to subscribe to this podcast in order to get the most up-to-date episode information and downloads. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, published or broadcast without prior written permission of Mountain Land Physical Therapy.